Section 5 of the History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1 by Livy. Translated by William Maspin Roberts. Book 1, Chapters 32 to 39. Chapter 32, Election of Ancus Martius. On the death of Tullus, the government in accordance with the original constitution, again devolved on the Senate. They appointed an interrex to conduct the election. The people chose Ancus Martius as king. The Senate confirmed the choice. His mother was Numa's daughter. At the outset of his reign, remembering what made his grandfather glorious, and recognizing that the late reign, so splendid in all other respects, had, on one side, been most unfortunate through the neglect of religion or the improper performance of its rites, he determined to go back to the earliest source and conduct the state offices of religion as they had been organized by Numa. He gave the pontifex instructions to copy them out from the king's commentaries and set them forth in some public place. The neighboring states and his own people, who were yearning for peace, were led to hope that the king would follow his grandfather in disposition and policy. War with the Latins. In this state of affairs, the Latins, with whom a treaty had been made in the reign of Tullus, recovered their confidence and made an incursion into Roman territory. On the Romans seeking redress, they gave a haughty refusal, thinking that the king of Rome was going to pass his reign amongst chapels and altars. In the temperament of Ancus there was a touch of Romulus as well as Numa. He realized that the great necessity of Numa's reign was peace, especially amongst a young and aggressive nation, but he saw too that it would be difficult for him to preserve the peace which had fallen to his lot unimpaired. His patience was being put to the proof, and not only put to the proof, but despised. The times demanded a Tullus rather than a Numa. Numa had instituted religious observances for times of peace. He would hand down the ceremonies appropriate to a state of war. In order, therefore, that wars might not only be conducted, but also proclaimed with some formality, he wrote down the law as taken from the ancient nation of the Acricoli, under which the Fetiales act down to this day when seeking redress for injuries. The procedure is as follows. The ambassador binds his head in a wooden fillet. When he has reached the frontiers of the nation, from whom satisfaction is demanded, he says, Here, O Jupiter, here ye confines, naming the particular nation whose they are. Here, O Justice, I am the public herald of the Roman people. Rightly and duly authorized do I come, let confidence be placed in my words. Then he recites the terms of the demands and calls Jupiter to witness. If I am demanding the surrender of those men or those goods contrary to justice and religion, suffer me nevermore to enjoy my native land. He repeats these words as he crosses the frontier. He repeats them to whoever happens to be the first person he meets. He repeats them as he enters the gates and again on entering the forum, with some slight changes in the wording of the formula. If what he demands are not surrendered at the expiration of thirty-three days, for that is the fixed period of grace, he declares war in the following terms. Hear, O Jupiter, and thou Janus Quirinus, and all ye heavenly gods, and ye, gods of earth and of the lower world, hear me. I call you to witness that this people, mentioning it by name, is unjust and does not fulfill its sacred obligations. But about these matters we must consult the elders in our own land in what way we may obtain our rights. With these words, the ambassador returned to Rome for consultation. The king forthwith consulted the senate in words to the following effect. Concerning the matters, suits, and causes whereof the Patriopatratus of the Roman people and the Quirites hath complained to the Patriopatratus of the Prisci Latini, and to the people of the Prisci Latini, which matters they were bound severally to surrender, discharge, and make good, 
whereas they have done none of these things, say, what is your opinion? He whose opinion was first asked replied, I am of opinion that they ought to be recovered by a just and righteous war, wherefore I give my consent and vote for it. Then the others were asked in order, and when the majority of those present declared themselves of the same opinion, war was agreed upon. It was customary for the fetial to carry to the enemy's frontiers a blood-smeared spear tipped with iron or burnt at the end, and in the presence of at least three adults to say, Inasmuch as the peoples of the Prisci Latini have been guilty of wrong against the people of Rome and the Corites, and inasmuch as the people of Rome and the Corites have ordered that there be war with the Prisci Latini, and the senate of the people of Rome and the Corites have determined and decreed that there shall be war with the Prisci Latini, therefore I and the people of Rome declare and make war upon the peoples of the Prisci Latini. With these words he hurled his spear into their territory. This was the way in which, at the time, satisfaction was demanded from the Latins, and war declared, and posterity adopted the custom. Chapter 33 After handing over the care of the various sacrificial rites to the flamens and other priests, and calling up a fresh army, Ancus advanced against Apollatorium, a city belonging to the Latins. He took it by assault, and following the custom of the earlier kings, who had enlarged the state by receiving its enemies into Roman citizenship, he transferred the whole of the population to Rome. The Palatine had been settled by the earliest Romans. The Sabines had occupied the Capitoline Hill with the citadel on the one side of the Palatine, and the Albans the Caelian Hill on the other, so the Aventine was assigned to the newcomers. Not long afterwards, there was a further addition to the number of citizens through the capture of Telenae and Facana. Politorium, after its evacuation, was seized by the Latins and was again recovered, and this was the reason why the Romans raised the city to prevent its being a perpetual refuge for the enemy. At last the whole war was concentrated around Modulia, and fighting went on for some time there with doubtful result. The city was strongly fortified, and its strength was increased by the presence of a large garrison. The Latin army was encamped in the open, and it had several engagements with the Romans. At last Ancus made a supreme effort with the whole of his force and won a pitched battle, after which he returned with immense booty to Rome, and many thousands of Latins were admitted into citizenship. In order to connect the Aventine with the Palatine, the district around the altar of Venus Mercia was assigned to them. The Janiculum also was brought into the city boundaries, not because the space was wanted, but to prevent such a strong position from being occupied by an enemy. It was decided to connect this hill with the city, not only by carrying the city wall around it, but also by a bridge for the convenience of traffic. This was the first bridge thrown over the Tiber and was known as the Pons Sublicius. The Fossa Coritium, also was the work of King Ancus, and afforded no inconsiderable protection to the lower and therefore more accessible parts of the city. Amidst this vast population, now that the state had become so enormously increased, the sense of right and wrong was obscured, and secret crimes were committed. To overawe the growing lawlessness, a prison was built in the heart of the city overlooking the Forum. The additions made by this king were not confined to the city. The Messian forest was taken from the Veientines, the Roman dominion extended to the sea, at the mouth of the Tiber, the city of Ostia was built. Salt pits were constructed on both sides of the river, and the temple of Jupiter Feretrius was enlarged in consequence of the brilliant successes in the war. Chapter 34. Migration of the Tarquins to Rome. During the reign of Ancus, a wealthy and ambitious man named Lucumo removed to Rome, mainly with the hope and desire of winning high distinction, for which no opportunity had existed in Tarquinae, since there also he was an alien. He was the son of Demaratus, a Corinthian, who had been driven from home by a revolution and who happened to settle in Tarquinae. There he married and had two sons, 
Their names were Lucumo and Arons. Arons died before his father, leaving his wife with child. Lucumo survived his father and inherited all his property. For Demaratus died shortly after Arons, and being unaware of the condition of his daughter-in-law, had made no provision in his will for a grandchild. The boy, thus excluded from any share of his grandfather's property, was called in consequence of his poverty, Egerius. Lucumo, on the other hand, heir to all the property, became elated by his wealth, and his ambition was stimulated by his marriage with Tanaquil. This woman was descended from one of the foremost families in the state, and could not bear the thought of her position by marriage being inferior to the one she claimed by birth. The Etruscans looked down on Lucumo as the son of a foreign refugee. She could not brook this indignity, and forgetting all ties of patriotism if only she could see her husband honored, resolved to emigrate from Tarquinae. Rome seemed the most suitable place for her purpose. She felt that among a young nation where all nobility is a thing of recent growth and won by personal merit, there would be room for a man of courage and energy. She remembered that the Sabine Tatius had reigned there, that Numa had been summoned from the Curies to fill the throne, that Ancus himself was sprung from a Sabine mother and could not trace his nobility beyond Numa. Her husband's ambition, and the fact that Tarquinae was his native country only on his mother's side, made him give a ready ear to her proposals. They accordingly packed up their goods and removed to Rome. They had got as far as the geniculum when a hovering evil swooped gently down and took off his cap as he was sitting by his wife's side in the carriage. Then circling round the vehicle with loud cries, as though commissioned by heaven for this service, replaced it carefully upon his head and soared away. It is said that Tonaquil, who, like most Etruscans, was expert in interpreting celestial prodigies, was delighted at the omen. She threw her arms round her husband and bade him look for a high and majestic destiny, for such was the import of the eagle's appearance, of the particular part of the sky where it appeared, and of the deity who sent it. The omen was directed to the crown and summit of his person. The bird had raised aloft an adornment put on by human hands to replace it as the gift of heaven. Full of these hopes and surmises, they entered the city, and after procuring a domicile there, they announced his name as Lucius Tarquinius Priscus. The fact of his being a stranger and a wealthy one brought him into notice, and he increased the advantage which fortune gave him by his courteous demeanor, his lavish hospitality, and the many acts of kindness by which he won all whom it was in his power to win, until his reputation even reached the palace. Once introduced to the king's notice, he soon succeeded by adroit complacence in getting on to such familiar terms that he was consulted in matters of state as much as in private matters, whether they referred to either peace or war. At last, after passing every test of character and ability, he was actually appointed by the king's will guardian to his children. Chapter 35 Death of Ancus, Election of Darquinius Priscus Ancus reigned twenty-four years, unsurpassed by any of his predecessors in ability and reputation, both in the field and at home. Tarquin was all the more anxious for the election of the new king to be held as soon as possible. At the time fixed for it, he sent the boys out of the way on a hunting expedition. He is said to have been the first who canvassed for the crown and delivered a set speech to secure the interest of the plebs. In it, he asserted that he was not making an unheard-of request. He was not the first foreigner who aspired to the Roman throne. Were this so, anyone might feel surprise and indignation. But he was the third. Tatius was not only a foreigner, but was made king after he had been their enemy. Numa, an entire stranger to the city, had been called to the throne without any seeking it on his part. As to himself, as soon as he was his own master, he had removed to Rome with his wife and his whole fortune. He had lived at Rome for a larger part of the period during which men discharged the functions of citizenship than he had passed in his old country. He had learnt the laws of Rome, the ceremonial rites of Rome, both civil and military under Ancus himself, a very sufficient teacher. 
He had been second to none in duty and service towards the king. He had not yielded to the king himself in generous treatment of others. While he was stating these facts, which were certainly true, the Roman people, with enthusiastic unanimity, elected him king. Though in all other respects an excellent man, his ambition, which impelled him to seek the crown, followed him on to the throne. With the design of strengthening himself quite as much as of increasing the state, he made a hundred new senators. These were afterwards called the Lesser Houses, and formed a body of uncompromising supporters of the king, through whose kindness they had entered the Senate. Institution of the Ludi Romani The first war he engaged in was with the Latins. He took the town of Apioli by storm and carried off a greater amount of plunder than could have been expected from the slight interest shown in the war. After this had been brought in wagons to Rome, he celebrated the games with greater splendor and on a larger scale than his predecessors. Then for the first time a space was marked for what is now the Circus Maximus. Spots were allotted to the patricians and knights where they could each build for themselves stands called fori from which to view the games. These stands were raised on wooden props branching out at the top 12 feet high. The contests were horse racing and boxing. The horses and boxers mostly brought from Etruria. They were at first celebrated on occasions of special solemnity. Subsequently, they became an annual fixture and were called indifferently the Roman or the Great Games. This king also divided the ground round the Forum into building sites. Arcades and shops were put up. Chapter 36. War with the Sabines. The Augur Atus Navius. He was also making preparations for surrounding the city with a stone wall when his designs were interrupted by a war with the Sabines. So sudden was the outbreak that the enemy were crossing the Anio before a Roman army could meet and stop them. There was great alarm in Rome. The first battle was indecisive, and there was a great slaughter on both sides. The enemy's return to their camp allowed time for the Romans to make preparations for a fresh campaign. Tarquin thought his army was weakest in cavalry, and decided that double the centuries which Romulus had formed, of the Ramnes, Titienses, and Luceres, and to distinguish them by his own name. Now as Romulus had acted under the sanction of the auspices, Atus Navius, a celebrated augur at that time, insisted that no change could be made, nothing new introduced, unless the birds gave a favorable omen. The king's anger was roused, and in mockery of the augur's skill, he is reported to have said, Come, you diviner, find out by your augury whether what I am now contemplating can be done. Attis, after consulting the omens, declared that it could. Well, the king replied, I had it in my mind that you should cut a whetstone with a razor. Take these, and perform the feat which your birds portend can be done. It is said that without the slightest hesitation he cut it through. There used to be a statue of Attis representing him, with his head covered, in the Comitium, on the steps to the left of the Senate House, where the incident occurred. The whetstone, also, it was recorded, was placed there to be a memorial of the marvel for future generations. At all events, auguries and the College of Augurs were held in such honour that nothing was undertaken in peace or war without their sanction. The Assembly of the Curries, the Assembly of the Centuries, Matters of the highest importance were suspended or broken up if the omen of the birds was unfavorable. Even on that occasion, Tarquin was deterred from making changes in the names or members of the centuries of knights. He merely doubled the number of men in each, so that three centuries contained 1,800 men. Those who were added to the centuries bore the same designation, only they were called the second knights, and the centuries being thus doubled are now called the six centuries. Chapter 37, Second Sabine War after this division of the forces was augmented, there was a second collision with the Sabines, in which the increased strength of the Roman army was aided by an artifice. Men were secretly sent to set fire to a vast quantity of logs lying on the banks of the Anio and float them down the river on rafts. The wind fanned the flames and the logs drove against the piles and stuck there 
they set the bridge on fire. This incident, occurring during the battle, created a panic among the Sabines and led to their rout, and at the same time prevented their flight. Many, after escaping from their enemy, perished in the river. Their shields floated down the Tiber as far as the city, and being recognized, made it clear that there had been a victory almost before it could be announced. In that battle, the cavalry especially distinguished themselves. They were posted on each wing, and when the infantry in the center was being forced back, it is said that they made such a desperate charge from both sides that they not only arrested the Sabine legions as they were pressing on the retreating Romans, but immediately put them to flight. The Sabines, in wild disorder, made for the hills. A few gained them. By far the greater number, as was stated above, were driven by the cavalry into the river. Tarquin determined to follow them up before they could recover from their panic. He sent the prisoners and booty to Rome. The spoils of the enemy had been devoted to Vulcan. They were accordingly collected into an enormous pile and burnt. Then he proceeded forthwith to lead his army into the Sabine territory. In spite of their recent defeat and the hopelessness of repairing it, the Sabines met him with a hastily raised body of militia, as there was no time for concerting a plan of operations. They were again defeated, and as they were now brought to the verge of ruin, sought for peace. Chapter 38. Surrender of Colatia. Colatia and all the territory on this side of it was taken from the Sabines. Egerius, the king's nephew, was left to hold it. I understand that the procedure of the surrender of Colatia was as follows. The king asked, Have you been sent as envoys and commissioners by the people of Colatia to make the surrender of yourselves and the people of Colatia? We have. And is the people of Colatia an independent people? It is. Do you surrender into my power and that of the people of Rome yourselves and the people of Colatia, your city, lands, water, boundaries, temples, sacred vessels, all things divine and human? We do surrender them. Then I accept them. Conquest of Latium. After bringing the Sabine War to a conclusion, Tarquin returned in triumph to Rome. Then he made war on the Prisciliatini. No general engagement took place. He attacked each of their towns in succession and subjugated the whole nation. The towns of Corniculum, Old Feculia, Camiria, Crestumerium, Amiriola, Medulia, Nomentum were all taken from the Prisciliatini or those who had gone over to them. Then peace was made. Undertakings in Rome. Works of peace were now commenced with greater energy than had been displayed in war, so that the people enjoyed no more quiet at home than they had had in the field. He made preparations for completing the work which had been interrupted by the Sabine War, of enclosing the city in those parts where no fortification yet existed with a stone wall. The low-lying parts of the city round the Forum and the other valleys between the hills where the water could not escape were drained by conduits, which emptied into the Tiber. He built up with masonry a level space on the capital as a site for the Temple of Jupiter, which he had vowed during the Sabine War, and the magnitude of the work revealed his prophetic anticipation of the future greatness of the place. Chapter 39. Birth and Youth of Servius Tullius. At that time, an incident took place as marvelous in the appearance as it proved in the result. It is said that whilst a boy named Servius Tullius was asleep, his head was enveloped in flames before the eyes of many who were present. The cry which broke out at such a marvelous sight aroused the royal family, and when one of the domestics was bringing water to quench the flames, the queen stopped him, and after calming the excitement, forbade the boy to be disturbed until he awoke of his own accord. Presently he did so, and the flames disappeared. Then Tonoquil took her husband aside and said to him, Do you see this boy whom we are bringing up in such a humble style? You may be certain that he will one day be a light to us in trouble and perplexity, and a protection to our tottering house. Let us henceforth bring up with all care and indulgence one who will be the source of measureless glory to the state and to ourselves. 
From this time, the boy began to be treated as their child and trained in those accomplishments by which characters are stimulated to the pursuit of a great destiny. The task was an easy one, for it was carrying out the will of the gods. The youth turned out to be of a truly kingly disposition, and when search was made for a son-in-law to Tarquinius, none of the Roman youths could be compared with him in any respect, so the king betrothed his daughter to him. The bestowal of this great honor upon him, whatever the reason for it, forbids our believing that he was the son of a slave, and in his boyhood a slave himself. I am more inclined to the opinion of those who say that in the capture of Corniculum, Servius Tullius, the leading man of that city, was killed, and his wife who was about to become a mother was recognized amongst the other captive women, and in consequence of her high rank was exempted from servitude by the Roman queen, and gave birth to a son in the house of Priscus Tarquinius. This kind treatment strengthened the intimacy between the women, and the boy, brought up as he was from infancy in the royal household, was held in affection and honor. It was the fate of his mother, who fell into the hands of the enemy when her native city was taken, that made people think he was the son of a slave. End of section 5